Good evening. Uh, we are back in ancient Babylon this evening at Daniel chapter 3. Um, if you have got a Red Church Bible, then you are looking for page 739. Um, please feel free to grab one of those if you don't have a, a Bible of your own on you. It will really help uh, to follow along um, with a, a story that will be very well known uh, to many of us, uh, but is just as inspiring um, and thought-provoking as the first time uh, you will have ever heard it, I'm sure. Um, as you're turning there, let me just catch you up. Um, God's people have been sent into exile. Uh, they're living uh, in a foreign land uh, among powerful people uh, who hate God and want nothing to do with him. And the question of the book is, how do God's people uh, continue to follow him in a world that doesn't? Uh, we've seen so far that the answer isn't to kind of get our heads down and hide our faith. Uh, it's not to throw in the towel, uh, but it's to resolve in our hearts, like Daniel did, uh, to do nothing that would dishonor God. And it sounds very inspiring, and then Monday morning comes, and we think, oh goodness, how far do I really need to go with this? In a world that hates God, uh, living for him alone is going to bring conflict. How far should we go uh, to honor him? Well, Daniel chapter 3 is going to give us the answer to these questions, and it's going to help us uh, to follow him all the way. Uh, let me read Daniel chapter 3, starting at verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar, that's the king of Babylon, made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. That's about uh, 90 feet by 9 feet or 30 meters by 3 meters. Uh, he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all of the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore... As soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans, remember that's a, a particularly Babylonian uh, style of mystic, wise person, uh, came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Well, it's a wonderful story. Uh, Let's pray for God's help as we pay attention to it together. Father, thank you that you are the God who speaks and you are the God who saves. Lord, as you speak to us 
uh, through your word tonight. Please help us to concentrate. Uh, Lord, please help us to be open uh, and submissive to what you have to say to us tonight. Lord, please give us the confidence we need to follow you in a world that doesn't. In Jesus' name, amen. On November the 22nd, Napoleon is coming to a screen near you. Uh, directed by Ridley Scott with Joaquin Phoenix in the starring role, it's set to be a smash hit, I'm sure. Uh, the trailer came out this week, uh, and it looks very impressive. Of course, Napoleon himself was an impressive figure, as it says on the poster. He came from nothing. He conquered everything. Uh, he conquered kingdoms and became emperor of France in 1804. But whenever I think of Napoleon, uh, my thoughts go straight away to the, the psychological phenomenon known as Napoleon Complex. D does anyone know what Napoleon Complex is more commonly known by? You can shout it out if you do. Small man syndrome. There we go. Small man syndrome. Have you heard of this? Um, according to my extensive research on uh, Wikipedia, um, small man syndrome is characterized by overly aggressive or domineering social behavior from short men and carries the implication that such behavior is compensatory for the subject's physical or social shortcomings. Well, I wouldn't know anything about that. Hey, what are you laughing at? In defense of small men everywhere, um, research has shown that we're, we're not any more aggressive than anyone else. Thank you to the University of Norwich for that one. Um, and in defense of Napoleon, the idea that he was short was apparently British propaganda uh, made up to make him look silly, as if there was anything silly about being short. Um, in reality, historians think he was actually around 5 foot 10, uh, so coming in just half an inch shy of our vertically sufficient associate pastor. Um, <laughs> Now, small man syndrome, it may or may not exist, but Christians can often suffer from a not dissimilar condition. Let's call it small God syndrome. It's characterized by overly fearful behavior and carries the implication that the, the God we serve is actually pretty powerless, rather minuscule in comparison to the power of the world around us. And when struck with small God syndrome, the world, well, it seems so impressive. And the pressure that the world puts on us feels overwhelming to the point where the Christian comes to the conclusion that the only way to cope here is to throw in the towel and join the world's party. Well, made up psychological conditions to one side. Do you ever feel like that? According to the Bible, Christians, all Christians are, by definition, exiles. We live in a world that dismisses God and has no hesitation in pressuring his people to conform. We're in the minority and believe things that outrage those in power. We fear what they can do to us, and God very often feels very small and very remote when faced with situations where we may need to put our reputations or our careers or even our lives on the line the book of Daniel knows all about the dangers of small God syndrome. And it's here to help. It's here to help fearful exiles see their God as he really is. Not a small God. A big God with power to save. A God who makes the world seem puny in comparison to him. We're going to start tonight by looking at the arrogance of a world which loves to project its own power and dismiss God's. So come with me. 
uh, to verses 1 to 7, the height of arrogance. Uh, Now, we have no idea how tall or short King Nebuchadnezzar was, but if there was anyone who could be described as exhibiting overly aggressive and domineering social behavior, he'd be first in line. And our passage starts with him building a monument to his own power. Verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 30 meters and its breadth 3 meters. If its sheer size doesn't impress you straight away, just wait until you see it. It's not only big and tall, it's covered in gold from top to bottom. Imagine it there, glinting in the Middle Eastern sunshine, visible for miles around. You couldn't miss it. Now, we're not given any more details about the the form this image took, but we are given lots of clues by the author of Daniel as to what it represents a direct challenge to God's power and authority. Last week, uh, we were shown the the vision that God revealed to King Nebuchadnezzar, a a dream of a, a huge statue, a huge image with a head of gold. Nebuchadnezzar was that head of gold. Uh, But the rest of the statue represented kings and kingdoms that would come after him. And the revelation was uh, that the whole thing was incredibly fragile, built on feet of clay. It was a vision from God that put Nebuchadnezzar in his place. It showed him the limits of his power. And in response to this revelation from the God of heaven, Nebuchadnezzar stamps his feet like a defiant toddler and says, no, no. He launches his building project, designed to show just how mighty and powerful he really is. Not just a head of gold, the image he sets up is gold all the way down. And did you notice how many times we're told that Nebuchadnezzar set up this statue? I counted nine times in the first 18 verses. Over and over again, he set up, he set up, he set up. Why the repetition? Well, it's another clue as to what's going on in the king's heart from what we saw last week. Um, If you've got a Bible open, flick your eyes to Daniel chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. This is Daniel's song of praise uh, to God, revealing God to be the one who holds all the wisdom and power. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. God is revealed as the one who has given Nebuchadnezzar his power, who has set him up as king. But rather than bow the knee to God, the king of Babylon decides to do some setting up of his own. And setting up this gargantuan idol isn't enough for Nebuchadnezzar. He wants to see everyone around him bow down and bow down to his authority. And so the order goes down the Babylonian org chart. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the the provinces are ordered to attend the idol's opening ceremony. Uh, These are the power wielders of Babylon. Uh, And like obedient little boys and girls, the powerful people in Babylon do just as they're told the satraps, the prefects, the governors, etc. I won't do that every time, um, etc. and so forth, click yes on the calendar invitation and arrive at the dedication service of Nebuchadnezzar's image. And while the the canapes and prosecco are being served, a herald announces a game of 
musical statue worship. Verse 4, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, and all the rest of it, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And if we know our Bibles, we know what a deeply sinful instruction this is. For Jews to follow this order would mean breaking the first two of God's commandments. There is only one God worthy of worship. Only one God to whom human beings should bow down and praise. Worshipping anyone or anything else is an affront to him. This was a deeply sinful command, but it's also deeply silly. Idolatry isn't just wrong, it's laughable. And in Babylon, we see the stupidity of idolatry on a massive scale. The Babylonians don't even try and hide the foolishness of what they're doing. Fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Well, if it's just some metal that's been set up by a human being, no matter how impressive it looks, why should anyone fall down and worship it like it's a god? Replacing the creator with something that's been created is just silly, no matter how big and shiny it is. It's laughable, but Nebuchadnezzar isn't laughing. Verse 6, whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Now, perhaps those furnaces were on hand from smelting all the gold for the statue, and perhaps the great and the good of Babylon could smell the furnace smoke as they mingled. Well, what would you do? And the band begins to play, and the power brokers of Babylon bow down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Imagine them all there, the most powerful people in the world's most powerful kingdom, with their noses pressed into the dirt, rows and rows of Babylonian bums pointing in the air, all as a tribute to Nebuchadnezzar's vanity and rebellion. Everyone, that is, apart from three Jewish friends. But before we get to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, let's pause here to recognize what we're being shown about Babylon. See, this is the way the world works. Um, rather than bow the knee to the God who created them, sinful humanity, it, it rejects him and seeks its own glory. Now, this has always been the way that God's enemies have operated. Babel has been here before with its huge tower, a great building pro- project built on the plains designed to unite the people of the world in rebellion against the God who made them. Nebuchadnezzar and his court are repeating the sins of their ancestors. It's the way things have always been, and it's the way things remain to this day. As Christians, we should never underestimate the extent to which our culture is driven by rebellion against God. The powers of this world insist on replacing God's worship with all sorts of sinful practices and silly beliefs. So, being a faithful exile, seeking to follow God and obey his ways will often mean swimming against the tide. You know, for those who chose to bow down to this idol, it's likely that few of them had a conflicted conscience. They didn't know the true God, 
what was the harm in adding another god to the list of dozens that they already worshipped? You can imagine them looking down their nose at anyone refusing to take part in this idol worship as if they had two heads. Why are you so uptight? Why are you so intolerant? Why are you always so awkward? Just fall in line, bow down with the rest of us. It isn't hurting anyone. This is a reminder to us exiles that 99.9% of people really can be wrong. Successful and powerful people might confidently proclaim all sorts of things that are contrary to God's word. Every single one of our friends and neighbors might nod their heads in agreement, but that still doesn't make them right. Like Nebuchadnezzar, the world is determined to reject God's authority, no matter how much rubbish they have to replace it with. Don't let it shock you, and most of all, don't join in with them. Of course, We know it's hard, don't we? We know that staying true to God and his word today will make us stand out like a sore thumb. It might cost us so much of what we value. How can we stay true to God in a world full of pride and power? Come with me to verses 8 to 18, where we see three men with the faith of giants. The faith of giants, verses 8 to 18. I'm sure Nebuchadnezzar was feeling uh, particularly pleased with himself and powerful at the end of verse 7. Uh, the golden image has been set up, the people had arrived, the band had played, the people had bowed. His orders had been carried out to a T. Well, he may have thought that until some slimy wise men slither into his throne room and tell him that not everyone did as he said. In verses 9 to 11, they trot out the king's command word by word and remind him of his threat. Then the accusations start, verse 12. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Well, it seems like these accusations were motivated by petty professional jealousy. The, the Chaldeans were there, some of, maybe some of those wise men uh, who we saw last week, the sort of people uh, that would have been furious that Daniel and his friends were promoted over them at the end of chapter 2. They'd been shown up, and they had it in for these Jews ever since. Now they get the chance to turn up the heat. Nebuchadnezzar, as is becoming, you know, the pattern for him by now, flies off the handle. He gets these Jews hauled before him. Is it true that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image I have set up? One last chance. The band's going to play, and it's bow or burn. The choice is yours. By the end of verse 15, Nebuchadnezzar has descended into the realms of sort of pantomime villain. Imagine him sitting on his throne, cackling away, saying, Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Mwahaha! Well, you can imagine them uh, looking at each other, maybe taking a moment to settle themselves. Faced with the epitome of worldly pride and power, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego speak, and their words are explosive. 
verse 16, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Like tiny sticks of dynamite, the words of our three friends blow Nebuchadnezzar's pretense of pride and power to smithereens. I think it's amazing when you look at this chapter. This is all that the three friends say. A couple of short sentences, verses 16 to 18. This is the only part they play. Not particularly kind of magnificent words. Just steady confidence in the God that they serve and a refusal to bow to anyone else. Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to answer to you. We answer to God. Whatever you throw at us, our God is able to save us, and he will save us. There's no small God syndrome here, is there? These exiles aren't impressed or intimidated by the king's power. They only have eyes for God and his power. And this is astonishing faith. It's a big view of God, and it gets even bigger. You see, their their faith isn't naive. Remember, these are people who have already lived through the exile They've seen Jerusalem go up in smoke. They've been kidnapped and carted off to a a foreign land. They know that following God in this world doesn't mean a a straight line to health, wealth, and prosperity. Their faith in God doesn't rely on him rescuing them. Look at verse 18. But if not, i.e., if God doesn't rescue us, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Even if we burn, we will never bow. We won't dishonor our God, even if it costs us our lives. This is big faith in a big God. This is the sort of faith that exiles need if they're going to keep following him no matter what. Brothers and sisters, this is the sort of faith that we need today. We're faced with the same enemies as Shadrach and co. We're living in a society that hates God and resents those who seek to honor him. Humanly speaking, those enemies hold a lot of power over us. Therefore, we shouldn't be surprised when faithfulness to God comes with a cost. That's the point that the apostle Peter makes in his first letter, written to Christians who are being viciously persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ, He was likely thinking of this passage when he wrote in 1 Peter 4 verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Suffering for being a Christian, being singled out, being targeted, it isn't a terrible sign that the world's out of control. It shouldn't send our confidence in God into a tailspin. It's normal for exiles to be targeted and persecuted for our faith. Now, Peter goes on to say some extraordinary things about suffering as a Christian in the rest of that chapter, Um, but he ends with this instruction in verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Nothing more to it than that. Christian, when you suffer for your faith, don't Throw in the towel and join the world's party. Trust God and keep going. 
the big faith of Shadrach and co. is the faith you need when everyone in your group of friends is gossiping about someone. And you know that if you don't join in and say all sorts of nasty things, you'll be the one they're talking about next. It's the faith you need when your boss puts pressure on you to do something unethical at work. Just a little lie here, and it will really help the company out. If you can't do that, we might need to consider your future here. It's the faith you need when all your mates in your WhatsApp group are sharing images. You know it's really not right to look at. You know there's no way to slip out of that group quietly. As soon as you hit that button, they'll all know why you've left. Where in your life do you need to have big faith? Where in your life do you need to see how big God is? And we can have that big faith because God hasn't changed. In fact, as New Testament believers, we have even greater reasons to have confidence in God's power to save than these three friends. We've seen his willingness to save us on the cross, even giving up his own son to death so that we could be forgiven for our rebellious rejection of him. We've seen his his power to save proved in the resurrection as he defeated the power of death and raised his son up to new life. We know that nothing is beyond his power. And through the Lord Jesus and his apostles, we have a much clearer idea of his plan to save us, that one day the Lord Jesus Christ will return and call his people to be at home with him, no longer exiles. We can have big faith in our big God, because he is still, verses 19 to 30, the God who rescues. The God who rescues. Nebuchadnezzar, he's had enough. Uh, The faith of these three Jews is like the, the sound of nails down a chalkboard. Utter agony as his pride is punctured and his fragile ego goes pop. Nebuchadnezzar goes into overdrive here, desperate to show his power. Uh, Halfway through verse 19, he ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. When Nebuchadnezzar gives an order, Babylon carries it out, and the exiles are bound and bundled into the flames. The furnace is so fierce that the the backdraft burns Nebuchadnezzar's own soldiers alive. In tumble Shadrach and co. Nebuchadnezzar takes a front row seat, uh, eagerly peering in through the oven door like I do when I'm desperate for a pizza to cook. But rather than seeing uh, seared Shadrach or melted Meshach, Nebuchadnezzar is given courtside seats to a miraculous display of God's salvation power. Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the known world, jumps out of his seat like he's been stung by a bee. (gasps) He can't believe what he's seeing. Didn't we cast three men bound into the fire? And all his yes men say, yes, O king. Isn't he good at counting? But I see four men, unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, And they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. How quickly things change. Just ten verses ago, Nebuchadnezzar was cackling like a madman, claiming to be more powerful than any god. 
Now he's wide-eyed with wonder, as the Most High God shows him once again where the real power lies. He tells Shadrach and Co. to come out, and out they come. They stand before the king and his counselors. There's not a single sign or smell that they've been near any flame. Nebuchadnezzar is blown away. Like last week, the passage finishes with Nebuchadnezzar praising the God of heaven. And his words, they, they express and summarize what we're really to take away from this passage. Words about what it means to be faithful exiles. Words about the God that we're to be faithful to. Verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any God except their own God. That's how to be faithful in exile. This is how far our faithfulness must go. A resolution to worship and obey God alone, even when it brings us into conflict with the powerful people in the world, even when it costs us our life. Maybe it's more likely for us in this room, our career prospects, our popularity, relationships with our family. But demonstrating Shadrach and Co.'s faith will only be possible for us if we share their view of God. A big God. A powerful God. A God who really can save. As Nebuchadnezzar says, verse 29, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Christian, this is your God. And he is just as powerful and able to save in 21st century London as he was 2,600 years ago in Babylon. He is a big God. Now, we know he doesn't promise to spare us from suffering for his name, but he has promised to be with us. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were joined by that heavenly presence with, uh, for just a few moments in the furnace we have this promise from the Lord Jesus Christ. Behold, he says to his people, I am with you always to the end of the age. Christian, he is with you, so stay with him no matter what.